Hello and welcome to Does It Swashbuckle? I am Jack Richardson, one of your hosts. Hello, Nathaniel Ashley, our other host. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, I've just realised that this time we absolutely need to remember to give a shout out to the lovely guy who did our new logo, James Crang. We love it so much. We hope you like it too. And it just makes us look so much less shit. Thank you, James. I, yeah, I was on the Spotify the other day and I saw that the logo had been changed and I thought it looked so cool. It kind of looks um, a little bit like, oh, what's that show? Um, DuckTales. <laughs> I've never seen DuckTales, but I can it see. It kind of looks like the DuckTales, um, I don't know what it is, maybe like the opening logo, like only, like only a little bit, but kind of, and it's absolutely the vibe that I think that we're going for. DuckTales, we could do it. We could absolutely do an episode on if there's like a DuckTales movie or something, because that's an oh, adventure yeah. show. Duck um, and Swashbuckle. I love that show. That's just really fun. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be talking about maybe like the first truly iconic adventure movie that we're discussing. Uh, obviously, we discussed some great movies, some last and great movies. Some really <laughs> like shit definitely. movies. <laughs> Uh, we discussed the extraordinary adventures of Adele Bonsac, but this movie is like truly just an iconic movie. I'm talking about The Princess Bride, directed by Robert, uh, Rob Reiner. It came out in 1987. You will probably have seen this movie already. Um, if you haven't, you were, like, get on it. Yeah. Like, just, just get on it. It will enrich your life. Yeah. So, Nate, before we go any further, before we recorded this episode, before we watched the movie again, what what is your take on The Princess Bride? What's your history with it? Uh, I think it was one of those weird ones where I heard of it long before I got around to seeing it. And um, so it's mentioned, it comes up a lot in American pop culture. And the one that I remember most vividly is it's mentioned a lot in How I Met Your Mother, which was kind of... It's very problematic, but also kind of a formative sitcom for people of my age. Um, and um, two of the characters just go on about how much they love it. They reference it a lot. There's this adorable scene of them sword fighting whilst, and it's, and it just kind of, because initially being a boy with narrow-minded taste, I thought, well, it has the word princess and bride in. Neither of these things scream action adventure to me and so I stayed away but I was like hang on a sec if, if they keep on mentioning it and eventually I kind of just gave in and was like well I might as well watch it just to understand what they're on about and I just loved it like I just came out of it so happy it's it's so wonderful in so many ways that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to try and touch on I don't think we can really summarize its true brilliance in just 40 minutes but um yeah it just made me so happy and then it's one of those ones where if someone hasn't seen it I'm very keen to get them to watch it because it is just it just brings joy that is the most thing I can say about it and then as we were coming up to this podcast um I start it was one of the things that inspired me when we were coming up with mm -hmm. ideas for podcasts. And I was like, I love The Princess Bride. I'd love a podcast where we can talk about films like The Princess Bride. And so I read the book and that is also a delight. It's exactly what you want from a book. 
of a movie that you love, um, although the book came first, I should add. Um, it's just the film, but more. Yeah. It's just so good. You were like the boy from the beginning of the movie. Yes. Like, Princesses, no. Brides, no. Also, Nate uh, says, the, this is a formative show for people of my age. Like, we're not almost the same age. Well, I'm I probably like a year older than you. <laughs> I don't want to assume you always seem much more modern than me. I, well, actually, most of my, this is off topic. Most of my um, sitcom references are from the 90s because Frasier is my favorite show of all I time. I take it back, you're much less modern than me. I'm very old. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that we've kind of uh, got like an interesting perspective here because obviously this is a movie that you really liked um, and really loved before the podcast and something that really made you want to do the podcast. This is not a movie that before this episode I'd ever seen. I'm embarrassed to admit Obviously, I knew about it. I knew how great it was. I knew I would probably really enjoy it because, like, I love Christopher Guest. Um, these movies are just, like, so great. Um, but I, I was always... I had that kind of nervousness. I don't know if you get as well of when you're going to watch a movie that you know is very acclaimed and you really want to enjoy it. I get, like, this nervousness about oh, what if I don't like it enough? What if I don't appreciate it in the way that I feel like I'm meant to appreciate it? And so I was always like, oh, I need to watch this at the right time because I really want to uh, enjoy it. And I, I'm very happy to say that watching it, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I think this is a really, really fun movie. It feels like the kind of movie that I could really dislike um, because... <laughs> I sometimes find thing this uh, movie has like a framing device. It's kind of metafictional. I sometimes find stuff like that a little overdone or not always done particularly well um, because it's kind of like a very knowing movie. I can find that a bit annoying sometimes. There's a lot of things about this movie that I feel like if done badly, I could really not vibe with. But this movie is such a joy and it does it so well. Uh, in so many ways that we need to touch on. We should probably, before we go further into detail, basically sum up the the baseline plot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got this framing device, which is this kid's lying sick in bed, and his granddad comes to read him a story, and he, being a kid of the 80s, is like, huh, books are for wimps. <laughs> um, and he's like, I don't want to listen to a book. And then his um, granddad starts reading him the story and there's a very sweet sort of subplot where he gradually becomes more and more invested over the course of the film um, but then the actual film is that story uh, and it's about uh, basically these two lovebirds who are torn apart by fate and then have to get back together again and there's just lots of sword fighting it's great it's kind of uh superficially similar in some ways to another film that we talked about uh on this podcast which i shouldn't have brought up because the name is now escaping me <laughs> is it the fall yes the fall okay we'll, we'll add all that bit up it's kind of superficially similar in some ways to another movie that we talked about on this podcast the fall you know um, i'm not going to edit this out right <laughs> he's, he's absolutely not he's gonna drag me on this podcast um, which is a movie that I didn't super enjoy, 
but also has a similar kind of framing device of an adult telling a child a story. And it, it kind of differs in some ways because that was very much, the fall is very much exploring like the kind of creative nature of storytelling in that the story changes a lot based on the input of the child. Whereas this is quite, it, it's literally just like a grandfather reading a book. But I think both of them have this, because they are metafictional, they're able to employ tropes in a way that maybe a standard movie couldn't. They might feel more kind of tired or more cliche, but because you're specifically telling a story within a story, I think it leaves you much more room to use your standard adventure movie tropes, but also do it in a fun and interesting way. And especially in this movie, a really funny way. I think I, I completely get what you're saying about things that are too self-aware can come off as quite annoying. I think Ryan Reynolds has been trying to mine that particular mm. vein of comedy gold for about five years too long at this point. But I think what sets The Princess Bride apart is that it's not, uh, oh, isn't that a bit, this a bit naff. Um, it's just a wholehearted love of the genre of adventure movies and especially I think a lot of Douglas Fairbanks movies um, mm. of the sort of 30s and so it's never cynical about it it just embraces it with warmth and happiness which I think helps keep it from feeling too annoying yeah and it's it's a knowing movie it occasionally winks at the narrative and winks at the tropes that it's using but it also takes itself seriously which I appreciate like it's funny and it's comedic and yet it's riffing on all of these tropes but it takes itself seriously the stakes that the characters are uh, facing are serious their emotional uh, connections and like their backstories are really serious to them they're not just played for jokes I'm thinking specifically about Inigo Montoya Hello, like, my name is Inigo Montoya, <laughs> who killed my father, prepare to die. He's, he, he's a really fun character, and he's really funny, but he's got this tragic backstory where his father is killed and he wants to avenge the death of his father. And that's taken seriously. There's serious, like, emotional stakes for him. It's not just played off as this, like, kind of self-aware, silly thing. And I think that this movie really balances, like, comedy and, like, pathos quite well. Absolutely. And it does the same. So the sort of lovebirds at the center of it all, uh, they, they do get in their little quips with the kid being like, oh, does this book have kissing? I don't like kissing, which honestly was such a mood for like Kid Nathaniel. He just didn't want any of that on screen. Um, I wanted kissing. I loved kissing. <laughs> but um, at the same time, there is a sincerity behind their relationship that means that you are genuinely invested in them getting there happily ever after. Yeah. I think uh, we should talk a little bit about how amazing the cast of this movie is. It's just such a good cast. No other cast has understood the assignment as perfectly and sort of uniformly as The Princess Bride. Everyone is on the same page. And I imagine a lot of that is down to Rob Reiner, who mm. directed some great films. Most famously, this is Spinal Tap, which is a very different film. It's still great. Um, and yeah, it's just brilliant. Um, Carrie Elwes is 
pitch perfect as this kind of dashing swashbuckling hero and even he's one, so hot he he's is so, so hot in this movie he's so hot like that he's got bomb. a little bit of lip fuzz and it doesn't make him ugly yeah he's just got this like swoopy blonde hair and then sometimes he's wearing like an only fans mask and <laughs> it's just it's just really fun and he also does a really good job at um obviously nobody uh, so his character kind of disappears a little bit from the movie and then reappears quite quickly pretending to be somebody else and it's funny because obviously as an audience member you know very clearly who this is like I don't think anybody is uh shocked when it's revealed that Carrie Alves is playing both of the characters um and it is just a disguise but he does you do feel like there is like a progression between those two different characters between like the kind of farmhand to like this swashbuckling hero and I think he just he's really good at playing your kind of standard swashbuckle hero character without making it annoying because a lot of the times heroes in these movies are not necessarily super interesting um and he isn't my favorite character in the movie but I do think he does a really good job at bringing that character to life absolutely um I think a lot of people's favorite character in the movie is probably, I think mine would have to be Inigo Montoya, who is, and the, mo- the most apt analogy for this is he is the Han Solo to yeah. Carrie Elwes's Luke Skywalker. He's just got that little bit of dash of darkness. Um, you initially meet him and he's working as a mercenary um, and he actually kidnaps the female lead, Robin Wright, who again, excellent. And then, of course, there is Andre the Giant, <laughs> WWE superstar Andre the Giant. <laughs> so much better than The Rock. He, they, he's just they, massive. Liam Neeson auditions for that role. I know. For that role of like massive strongman. Liam Neeson. No, I don't know how tall Liam Neeson is. He is very tall. I don't see him in any universe playing that role. No, I think. That initially they were considering Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I can see why, but I, I just can't see the film being the same without Andre the Giant. He's absolutely brilliant. He's so funny, he's so sweet, and he's so big. It's just so good. Um, Robin Wright plays the titular princess, Buttercup. Um, and I think that this is, especially in the context of her career, a really important movie because up until this movie she was best known for starring in like NBC daytime soap operas which I mean very popular I would probably enjoy something like that but they're not known for being super prestigious roles like people uh, I think even more so in the US and the UK though is a thing in the UK as well people really look down on soap opera actors um often because they're not always great but people like Margot Robbie and Robin Wright I think prove that you can start a soap opera and still be a great actor and this was kind of her breakthrough movie into the film industry and it's led to like a really kind of long and uh, good career for her and I think that she's really good in this movie playing a role that could easily be a nothing role because she is like the kind of damsel in distress mm. I do think that she gives that character something interesting i do think it's not the 
most well-written character. I do think that this movie is a little damsel in distressy at times, but she does feel like she has a backbone. She feels like she has opinions on things and she feels like a strong character. And I think a lot of that is down to Robin Wright really committing to the role. Yeah, she's got an inner steel. And I think without that, she because she is quite a haughty character, mm. she's not always the brightest and she could come off as so annoying. Yeah. But Robin Wright just manages to avoid that by being Robin Wright, you know? We talked a, about um, some of like the main characters of the movie, but I think the thing that really makes the cast good about this movie is it does not matter whether you are like Harry Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, like playing these big roles in the movie, or whether you're playing bit parts. Everybody seems to know exactly what character they're playing, exactly what the film is trying to do. Like, I want to make a special uh, Marjorie Mason, who plays the ancient booer, uh, who appears in a, a kind of fever dream of Buttercup. Uh, <laughs> she's playing this old lady who just starts booing uh, <laughs> um, Buttercup for, for betraying her, her love, Wesley. Uh, and she starts calling her the queen of refuse and booing her. It's, it's so funny. It's so good. And it's the smallest role that only happens for like a minute. And it's so memorable. Yes. Yeah, as you say, everyone is just perfect at fleshing out that fantasy world. And it does feel like a world where there are just hundreds of other adventures going on at the same time. And it's delightful. Yeah. Uh, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane uh playing these like miracle workers uh sages i guess they're just so funny and i think it it really they in particular i think emphasize a lot of like what this movie does right where they are playing these roles like really silly with like accents that do not match like They're basically like New York accents. The gag is that they're like New York Jewish Americans. Yeah. But one of them's got like, is basically the Merlin of the world, but he's been fired and he's already grouchy about it. And they work so well because they're really funny. But at the same time, they're not doing it in a way that means that you don't take the story seriously. It's really entertaining, but still you're, you're like, oh, these are like real characters. And I I really love that. I just think it's done really well. I think. So much of this movie, like, if people did not play it in the right way, it just really wouldn't work. I just think that this is a movie where so many of the pieces just come together really, really well. And I think the dialogue goes a long way to helping that. It's, on the one hand, it's very over the top, knowingly. Um, All the place names are ridiculous. There's the Cliffs of Insanity. You have beasts that are called rodents of unusual size. Um, But there's just these little bits of wit dotted throughout. Um, So there's there's a lovely interchange between Inigo and Wesley as Wesley's climbing up a cliff. Um, And Inigo offers to throw him a rope. Um, And then Wesley's like, no, you'll, you'll just cut the rope. Yeah. And he goes, can I give you my word as a Spaniard? And Wesley goes, no good, I've known too many Spaniards. <laughs> and just, and then when he gets to the top, they're like, you seem like a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem like a decent fellow. I hate to die. Yeah. 
And I think that dialogue is a big part of the reason it's become so iconic because it's so endlessly quotable. And you yourself were saying that you've been sort of quoting it without knowing for years. Oh, yeah, that you do not, if you've not seen this movie, when you watch it, you will realise how much quotes from this movie have really like penetrated pop culture. Um, like there's so many iconic ones, like the whole uh, from Montoya, uh, like, oh, that word you're using, I don't think it means what you think it means. Like that gets quoted so often. I've used that so many times and I did not know that it came from The Princess Bride. I think it's really uh, interesting when I was researching for this episode that Rob Reiner is not the first person who has tried to bring this to the screen. You know, when he was uh, directing Stand By Me, which was released in 1986, which is the same year that this movie was filmed in. Rob Reiner was so good in the 80s. Yeah, he was really good. He wanted to make this movie um, and he was told that he couldn't. And when he was told he couldn't, he realised that multiple people had tried to bring this book to screen without much success. Um, And eventually he was able to get it funded and made. And I think it's interesting that they had so much trouble bringing this book to the screen. In some ways, it doesn't really make sense because it doesn't feel like it should be particularly difficult. But in other ways, I think you do have to remember that this kind of genre, this like fantasy romance adventure type movie is not the kind of movie that is made much in Hollywood, especially during the 80s. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. And especially when you look at the book, the book is very odd to read because it basically positions itself as just a, a um, sort of edited translation of an Mm. old Italian book that supposedly this great tome about the history of his country and it's told with such conviction that you genuinely start to believe it you're like oh so William Goldman literally just edited the book and then got famous Mm. no he made it all up and I don't know why but it just makes it so much richer and weirder but then that also adds so many aspects to the film that make it really hard to do well. And on top of that, it is just such an earnest, wholehearted film that if you don't capture that vibe specifically, you can just imagine it being awful. Yeah, I do feel like if this movie was made today, it would be much worse because Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the time the instincts for stuff like this is to go really heavy as anything that is like vaguely mass fictional i think the instinct is to go really heavy on being super self-referential um i think that if this movie was made now it would just not work i think that the balance would be off i think if this movie was made now it would have the vibe of like a dreamworks animated movie like it would star ryan reynolds it It would absolutely star ryan reynolds and i would hate it yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to be too mean to Ryan Reynolds, but I don't find him a super compelling actor. I think he just, he's in too many places and his shtick is too similar to the point where even he's just sleepwalking through stuff now. He used to, I think, that there was some shading to it, but now he people are just like, oh, we'll just cast Ryan Reynolds as Ryan Reynolds. And it becomes super annoying. Yeah, when that movie came out, Free Guy, I saw the trailer and I was like, well, there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to watch this. Yeah. 
So anyway, enough of the Ryan Reynolds bashing. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to celebrate. That's what I was here to do. That's what I was (laughs) promised. (laughs) We're here to celebrate a great adventure movie. Um, I think it's also worth noting that this has genuinely quite compelling action. Hmm? Um, It's weird because it's not... It's not convincing in and of itself. There are silly little stunts that obviously wouldn't make sense in real fight. The sets are very notably fake, and they've got these gorgeous painted backgrounds that are very obviously not real. And yet, somehow, it's you're like entirely invested in it. Mm-hmm. I think in the same way that, I don't know, when I was a kid, I would watch the old 60s Batman show. And even though it's utter crap, like the production value is so low. I was genuinely invested in who'd win those fights. And I think that's just a testament to the the ability of the storytellers and the charm with which the characters have been created. Um, but they do have genuinely really interesting action scenes. So the I think the best one and the one that you were saying earlier that you you didn't necessarily click into the movie for the first 20 minutes. I, I totally agree. And when I first watched it, I wasn't entirely sure about it. And then they have the sword fight at the top mm. of the Cliffs of Insanity between Wesley and Inigo. And the movie just clicks into place like that. Yeah. Um, it's this brilliant thing where it's playful, they're fencing back and forth. The choreography is so much fun. They're jumping and flipping and moving over obstacles and sort of tact- tactically um sort of playing with each other as well as i've said the dialogue between them is great there's there's an obvious respect between them as people who recognize that they're both swords masters and they they just both are having so much fun uh it actually turns out that they they had choreographed the entire thing and then the choreographers looked at it on the set and thought nah fuck it we can do more yeah they just went nuts and yeah, you can just see that care and effort in every single frame of this film and it makes it a genuine delight. Yeah, I think weirdly enough, in some ways, this movie reminds me of like a kind of SNES game from like the 90s where it's not trying because of various like production region, reasons, like budget reasons and also storytelling reasons, it's not trying to give you a super realistic action scene it's not trying to give you something where you're like this is indistinguishable from reality that's really not the point it's giving you something that is consciously fake but doing it in a way that is so compelling and so artistically interesting that's kind of the point and i really like that and like don't get me wrong realistic action scenes can also be really good in the right movie but i think for something like this where you have that kind of like metafictional narrative. I think having something that like, you can tell this is like a choreographed stage fight scene on some really nice like painted backgrounds. I think that that works so much better. And I think so much of like the production design of this movie, even though it didn't have a huge uh, budget, I think so much of it is just, it so, feels so lovingly mm. made and so lovingly crafted. It's, it's really escapism at its finest. And I think it, it uses iconography that we don't necessarily... Like, I can't look at a scene from it and be like, oh, that's from that film. Mm. But 
we've all grown up or in western culture a lot of people have grown up with those kind of swashbuckling films the sword fighting the fencing um just that whole idea and it just taps into that so perfectly and it's kind of the most adventure adventure movie mm. i mean when i was watching it i was trying to think uh, if Disney remade this movie, which would be the first gay Disney character in this movie? And <laughs> all of them. I think there's a couple of notable contenders. I'm going to say uh, probably uh, Fezzik, Andre the Giant's character. I would have said Bazzini. That's too obvious, though. That's fair. I don't think Disney's ever been concerned about obviousness. <laughs> I love I love all their uh, their first gay characters. I think that's very fun. And no, I mean, the worst would be Miracle Max. Miracle Max would have oh, this uh, yeah, really I can see like that. grouchy husband, and it would be adorable. <laughs> I mean, they did um, a couple of years ago. Um, there was a uh, some rumors that they were thinking of making a remake to this movie. Please God, I, let it never happen. It received an incredibly negative response on Twitter fans and I actually this is one movie that I I really couldn't see it happening I mean obviously never say never like the Hollywood remake machine will keep on going regardless of if people want it to or not but I really feel like this is one movie that I at least really hope doesn't get remade because I think so much that is good about this movie is lightning in a bottle Mm. and I don't think it's easily replicable yeah I I think with so many things, I think one of the major issues that Hollywood has is that they keep on remaking stuff that was great instead of stuff that could have been great. Mm. I think there is a case for make, remaking films where you you see potential in a story, but it wasn't realised for whatever reason. Um, I think quite a lot of the sort of period drama pieces mm. are sort of taking those stories but then updating them for our current social um beliefs which i think is interesting but so often they just take something that was already great and mm. still works and then try and remake it and it's just pointless because yeah it was good the first time why bother yeah. i think it works off or it can work uh, more if you are adapting something for example a book that's already been adapted mm. like i'm thinking of little woman where I think that there have been multiple adaptations of that book. And I think that each of them adapt in a very different way with a very different perspective. And I think that all of those are, are individually distinct movies that work for their own merits. And I don't think that you would necessarily want one of them to not exist or to have one be the proper version. But I can't really see the same thing happening with The Princess Bride because there's a lot of stuff, as you mentioned about the book, that is difficult to adapt in the first place. I think that this is the best way that they could have really done it. And I, I don't really see what alternative take you could go for. And the film is just too beloved. Like, yeah, even the author acknowledges that if you've read the book, it's because of the film. Hmm. It's, it's just absolute. Even if you haven't seen it, for those who have seen it, it's pretty much everyone loves it i can't think of a single person who's seen princess bride and been like eh, it was fine do you know how much more exciting this podcast would be if i'd watched this movie and i was like i don't really like it 
I I think it would be the end of the podcast. We would have had a fight. Yeah, like pod. it would have been fun. I'm not sure there's a point doing a podcast about adventure movies if you don't like the princess. <laughs> it's quite nice though because you're gonna have to go quite far back in our episodes to find a movie that I didn't <laughs> resoundingly dislike. Right, hang on. Like no, Atlantis, we, did, maybe? we did Atlantis. Yeah, but even that, you were like, Meh. <laughs> I'm. Maybe I'm too uh, negative about these things. But I do think, uh, going on about what you were saying about this movie being really beloved, I think, and this is a point that's been made a lot by a lot of different people, so often we throw around the phrase a cult film uh, or a film with a cult following really, really easily to any movie that that has fans. (laughs) Any movie that has people who appreciate it becomes like a cult film. I think any movie that isn't like immediately obviously mainstream yeah Yeah. but then i've heard star wars be described as a cult film before and i think that that, no star wars is just a cult that that's (laughs) that's just called a popular movie like (laughs) uh if there's any movie that and i do think the definition of a cult film is difficult if there is any movie that i think it, it is like a perfect example of a cult film it's the princess bride because it's a movie that was you know, it did okay at the box office, not super great. Um, it had like kind of decent success, but it has garnered such a following and such a legacy since it's penetrated pop culture so much. There's board games and card games, and uh, there's been so many tributes to this movie. And I think that this is a perfect example of something that has really developed a distinct following around it. And I think it makes sense because it's such a distinctive film. Despite mm. the fact that it's like a lot of films, there's no film quite like it, mm. if that makes sense. It's kind of taking lots of influences, but then just making them wholeheartedly its own. And it's done so well that nothing can really match it, I don't think. Yeah. I, the cast still seem to really enjoy and appreciate being part yeah. of this movie. Um, I would have been really intrigued to see the see a lot of people um, auditioned to play Buttercup. This is at least according to the Wikipedia page. Um, I would have been really interested to see what the Courtney Cox Buttercup or the Whoopi Goldberg Buttercup would have been like. <laughs> I think either of those would have been incredibly uh, <laughs> interesting. I'd love and to see Whoopi Goldbergs. I. Honestly, I I think that uh, Robin Wright's probably would maybe have worked better in the context of the movie, but I could see Whoopi Goldberg doing a really fun Buttercup. Because mm. right now, I don't know if Buttercup is anybody's like favorite character. Whoopi Goldberg as Buttercup could have, I think, elevated that role somewhat. I'm not saying that it would necessarily have been better than Robin Wright. I think Robin Wright's... Uh, work fits in really well with like the scope of the movie but like a Whoopi Goldberg buttercup I think could have been really fun and in some uh parallel universe out there exists yeah if you believe that kind of thing I don't but (laughs) or it's not that I don't I just don't care anyway (laughs) uh any last thoughts on this movie watch it if you have no if you haven't seen it then you should absolutely watch it I'm excited for you to watch it because I think it is just going to be 
two hours of you being surprised at how much you enjoy it and how much you care about the characters. And if you've already seen it, then you know it's great. Watch it, mm. treat yourself. I would say the same thing. This is a really breezy movie. It's not a super intimidating long movie to watch. It's really fun. And actually, I'm really excited to rewatch this movie because I think that this is the kind of movie that probably excels even more when you know what's coming and you know the beats it's about to hit. I'd love to watch it with just like a bunch of friends, few drinks and everyone just sort of shouting out all the quotes. Finally, I guess we do have to ask, given it is the name of our podcast, does it swashbuckle? Jack, does it swashbuckle? This movie absolutely swashbuckles. I mean, this this feels like a very Nate movie. Um, and I, I definitely feel like Nate has a very swashbuckle taste. And yeah, I think that this movie swashed all my buckles. Exactly. Five buckles swashed. <laughs> Just, it is... Yeah, it's one of those movies you think of when you think of swashbuckling. It's that good. It is. It's really good. Just go out and watch it. Thank you all so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Jack, for doing such a wonderful job presenting, as always. Yeah, um, thanks so much. See you guys soon. Bye. Bye.